You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 91 of Tax Talks. This is Hydra Robson, and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. What options do you have to structure a trust? What is a hybrid trust? What triggers a trust resettlement? What is trust cloning and trust stripping? Paul McEnroth of Cleary Hall in Brisbane kindly agreed to walk you through the options you have and to answer all these questions. So here's Paul. So you can structure your trust as a family discretionary trust or a unit trust. Obviously, variations from a unit trust called a hybrid unit trust. So we might focus on unit trusts as a starting point. So a unit trust involves generally a, a group of beneficiaries who subscribe for units in a unit trust, similar to a company that has shares. A unit trust proprietary interest in a unit trust are broken up into units. Oftentimes, the beneficiaries or the unit holders of the unit trust will pay a subscription price or a unit price in order to receive their units The beneficiaries of a unit trust are generally called unit holders. Now, these have a similar structure to discretionary trusts. They'll have a trustee and they'll have trust property. There are different forms and really it's a, a drafting exercise more than a legal form. There are some unit trusts that have a set law similar to family trusts, but there are others that don't have a set law and the initial trust property is that unit subscription price. So that is the basis for starting the trust. So again, we need three things for the trust, the trustee, beneficiaries and the trust property. Do you see unit trusts less often around small to medium business and families? Is it that you see unit trusts more in investment managed funds and widely held trusts? Yeah, we tend to see unit trusts more in a scenario where there are either parties that are not related working in one business together and they've opted to go away from a company or the parties related but perhaps from different branches of a family. So two brothers, for example, and their families want to run one business together so they might start a unit trust in which their two family discretionary trusts are the unit holders. That's generally where unit trusts are utilised. And the reason that somebody would choose a unit trust over a company is because in a unit trust you can have the type of income flow through for tax purposes. So if the unit trust makes capital gain or frank dividends, that income can flow through to the beneficiaries, whereas in a company it wouldn't. And that's, is that the main reason why somebody would go for a unit trust and not for a company? Yeah, that, that is one of the reasons. But obviously where you've said about the capital gain aspect, one of the issues is that CGT event E4. Before. So in a standard scenario, what, what happens is clients will come in, they'll set up a unit trust and they might subscribe for units a nominal amount, $10 each. But the problem is that CGT event E4 will occur where you're flowing through by streaming an untaxed portion. So an untaxed amount that is flowing to the unit holders because of their unit holdings. So in that way, CGT event E4 creates another taxing point 
and you can negate the benefits of having unit trusts. Yes. One of the other benefits too, I guess, is that you don't have any Division 7A compliance if there were, for example, loans from the unit trust to related parties. If it were a company, you would obviously have Division 7A compliance to deal with. So provided there are no unpaid present entitlements in the trust structure, you could make loans to related parties. So that's another, I guess, benefit of a unit trust Unpaid present entitlements in Division 7A is probably a whole topic in itself. It is, and you you have done them. I've listened to them. (laughs) So one of the other things you need to watch out for in a unit trust setting is that it's not necessarily what's called a fixed trust for the trust loss measures. So that's something to consider because if, if, for example, the trustee had a power to make a gift, well, that may take it out of being a fixed trust. So depending on what the rules are of the trust... It's not necessarily a fixed trust, which is a fairly strict concept for those trust loss measures. A fixed trust might not be a fixed trust for tax purposes. A unit trust may not be a fixed trust for tax purposes, that's right. And is there a difference between law and tax? So from a legal perspective, then depending on the terms of the trust, obviously, but in theory the, the unit holders have a proprietary right in the assets. Whereas from a a fixed trust perspective, if there are rules that may mean a trustee has an ability to distribute income elsewhere or to gift money elsewhere, then for the tax law purposes, it may not be what's called a fixed trust. Hence, all four trust loss provision tests apply. Yes, that's right. The other aspect is that just because you have an asset held by a unit trust doesn't mean you automatically have asset protection because if the units are held by individuals, then you don't have the associated asset protection. So you need to make sure that the unit holders themselves are trusts, discretionary Discretionary trusts. Yeah, so that's how you get asset protection for, I guess, the beneficiaries of that discretionary trust. Another type of structure is what's called a hybrid unit trust. And it's, as the name suggests, a hybrid between a unit trust and a discretionary trust. And what it allows is the trustee has the ability to distribute income and capital from the trust to discretionary beneficiaries, but generally only with the consent of the ordinary unit holders. So the ordinary unit holders have to consent to that discretionary distribution. And if we come back to the question of CGT event E4, if, for example, our capital gain was distributed via the discretionary distributions... Then you don't then have an E4. That's right. And that's the benefit to having a hybrid unit trust over a unit trust. Probably what it really requires is your resolutions. Make sure that you're using the discretionary distribution re- um, clauses rather than just flowing it via the ordinary clauses that would flow automatically to your beneficiaries or to the unit holders. To make 100% clear, it's a discretionary income distribution. That's right. It's not subject to E4. And it's it's not subject to E4 for for the exactly same reason that discretionary trusts are not subject to E4. So, yep.
trust resettlement is a term that has widespread angst, yeah, attached to it. And, and whenever you're suggesting any form of variation to a trust, the first... Everybody screams the, trust resettlement. That's it. And, and I think if we called it by a different name, it would perhaps provide a little less angst because a trust resettlement is really the end of one trust and the creation of a new trust. So I think if we thought about it in that way, it may perhaps provide a little less angst. But I think the angst is attached to the tax consequences because Absolutely. resettlements can incur capital gains, tax can incur stamp duty, and that creates the angst, not so much, Absol no, so abso much the Absolutely. Word. I think if you use the words or creation of a new trust, I think people think would understand, yeah, would, would think more positively to say, well, That's not what we're doing. All we're doing is changing the terms of the trust. But it has been an area that has caused a lot of angst for many years. I see. Your point is that the word resettlement doesn't make it clear enough that the only thing you need to be worried about is that when you create a new trust. Correct. Resettlement can be done in all sorts of ways, but the way that I think creates most fear is that if we vary the trust terms and that causes a CGT event or a stamp duty event. Now, the events that are really relevant are CGT event E1 and E2, so either the creation of a new trust over an asset or the transfer of an asset to a trust. So, I see. So I threw E5 into the mix before. That's that right. That was e, no, E5 is about where a beneficiary becomes absolutely entitled yes. as against the trustee. So that's a slightly different concept. The main cases on these trust resettlements are uh, commercial nominees, which was a, a case from the late 90s and a later case in the early 2000s called Clark's case. Now, commercial nominees involved a super fund and the superannuation fund trustee executed variation, which did a number of things. It really was going from a, a smaller fund into a, a larger fund. So it changed the name of the fund. It added or appointed a new trustee. So it added a new category of beneficiaries and it changed the, the characteristics of the fund from a defined benefit fund to an accumulation fund. And it also introduced a professional management company. It's obviously had grown to, to a large extent and it allowed for the introduction of administration fees and promotion of this fund to the public. Now, both these cases came about really because the commissioner was asserting that certain deductions that were being claimed or losses from earlier years shouldn't be allowed because the trust that was in existence when the losses arose was not the same trust as the trust that was trying to claim the losses now. And the court in commercial nominees said no. They said it, it was the same trust and the court said that there were three main indicia of continuity of the trust, and that is the constitution of the trust, so the, the trust terms in a way, the trust property and membership. And it said that changes in one or more of those matters must be such as to terminate one trust or produce a result that it does not derive the income in question so as to destroy that continuity of the trust. So if the changes brought about really the end of one trust and the start of a new trust, then that would be a resettlement. 
I see. So we only have a resettlement if we have all three of those events present or one of those events present? No. So I think really what the court was saying is you need to not look at each little step and say, well, if you put all of those together, well, the trust deed itself is so different to the trust at the beginning. What you need to look at is saying, well, did we have trust property held by a trustee for beneficiaries and did that continue between the time when the losses arose and when the time when we tried to claim the deduction. Now, it probably became more um, apparent or it's probably a little clearer to understand when we talk about Clark's case. And again, it was a decision in the late 2000s and between 1993 and June 2001, a number of characteristics of the trust had changed and that included a change in trustee, changes in unit holders, there was an extinguishment of a number of liabilities of the trust, they extinguished the former trustee's right of indemnity of the trust, which is is fairly ordinary, and there was a change of activity of the trust from being a dormant trust, which may have just held very little assets, to an active trust through addition of further funds. And the Commissioner sought to argue again that, well, all of those changes meant that it's not the same trust. So the trust that incurred the losses is just not the same trust. But so even though it was a dormant trust, it still had incurred losses? It, well, it, became it probably dormant. became it dormant ran, through that period. Yeah. So it ran up a huge loss and then yeah, people that's stopped right. doing so, what they're doing because it then, clearly wasn't working. And there will be many clients around the country who will have that scenario where a trust will have made losses, it will have sat for a long time, probably just carrying forward those losses, and they'll then begin investing again and they'll want to use those, those losses. So that's not a, a new business. That's right. It's not an abnormal scenario. And what the court said in Clark's was that those changes, so a change in trustee control of the trust, trust assets and, and unit holders, none of that has the effect of terminating the existence of the first trust and uh, creation of a new trust. So that made it fairly clear that you can have changes in the terms of the trust, beneficiaries, trustees and and trust property. You can have changes in those things, but that doesn't automatically create a resettlement. It needs to be, the changes need to be so fundamental as to cause one trust to stop and another trust to start. So the Commissioner did put out a ruling, TD 2012 slash 21, which pretty much accepted that view, albeit that it had changed his, the cases had changed his approach in these matters, accepted that, well, changes in those areas don't necessarily constitute a a resettlement. Mm. So the Commissioner had a bad run with that because he lost both in commercial nominees and in Clark's case, he lost in both cases. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he he did lose both of those cases. But from both of those cases, probably the most important aspect to come from them is that you need to have a valid and broad power of amendment to allow these changes to occur. So if we go back to commercial nominees, if the power of amendment within the deed is broad enough to allow the variations that you're you're wanting to make, then the court has said that that is all that's required. So 
It's about reading the deed and making sure that the terms of your variation are within the power of the trustee to make. So it's vitally important that your variation power in the trustee will allow you to do the variations that you require. And do most modern trustees allow these broad variation powers? Absolutely. Certainly all the trustees that I've seen in it, that we would call modern deeds or certainly post these cases, the power of variation is very broad. It would allow significant changes to a trust deed in order to meet whatever the requirements of the trustee are. I have a deed currently where there is no power of variation. So it's an older deed and the clients are wanting to make Trustee is wanting to make variations to the trust, but there is just no power in the deed at all. And that's that's a problem. It's a problem for the trustee. And in, in that scenario, it really requires the trustee to go to court and ask the court for a declaration that the trust can be varied. And it's really all about being able to claim trust losses that had been incurred previously. Well, not necessarily. That's what those cases were about. Okay. You touched on it before, the, really the revenue implications are CGT event E1 being that there is the creation of a new trust. So if, for example, the case where you don't have sufficient power to vary a trust but you vary it anyway. um, and cause a creation of a new trust, well, all of those assets are now on a new trust so you've got a CGT event and you didn't mean to. Now, there may be other things, balance adjustments for depreciating assets, trading stock, deem sales, those sorts of things. So there are, there's and, and like you said, stamp duty or transfer duty for the land and other assets. So they're the revenue implications of perhaps varying a trust where you didn't have the power to do so. What are common reasons to have to change a trustee? I can imagine one is that if you don't have a Section 95 clause in, in the trust deed, that you want to get that one in. But what other variations are there? Because just starting in your, a different business doesn't require any change of the trust deed. Yeah, so there, there may be uh, an older deed that doesn't have the ability to stream frank dividends or capital gains. You might want to include new beneficiaries to the trust like so a that's, son or a daughter got married. and Correct. Or you wanted to include your brother and he, he wasn't part of the original beneficiary list. So there are some other reasons or why you might want to change the trust. There's a whole myriad of reasons why a trustee might, might want to. It really depends on the circumstances of what that particular trustee is doing at the time. One of the other aspects that trustee may wish to do is attempt to convert a unit trust to a hybrid unit trust and introduce that discretionary element. And provided your power of variation is sufficiently broad, well, that may be able to be accomplished depending on the terms of the trust. So that would allow for discretionary beneficiaries to be introduced into that unit trust scenario. So that's another variation that the trustee would not do lightly depending on the terms of the deed, could be achieved to allow greater flexibility in distribution of income and capital. So that's another aspect. So when we talk about trust resettlement in a way, another way that we might use a trust resettlement is a term called trust cloning. So trust cloning is a little harder in the income tax world because some earlier 
exemptions may be a bit strong, but earlier provisions allowed us to do trust cloning without significant CGT event or consequences. But now a trust clone where you might have one trust and you want to transfer assets from that trust to another trust that has effectively the same terms. Why would you want to do that? Just because the other trust has slight, has a different trust deed or has a different group of beneficiaries? My experience from a Queensland perspective is that people will buy real estate assets in one trust and suddenly get a land tax bill and they won't have realised that if I buy my third property in the same trust, all of those properties get put together for land tax purposes, whereas if they bought them in a different trust with a different trustee, then you would get different land tax thresholds. So, that so you basically in, get the exemption twice. So, yeah, that's right. You get the, the, the threshold or the tax-free threshold twice. So you basically should have every property in a separate trust. That's right, with different trustees. So that's one scenario. Another scenario may be for family planning reasons. Uh, you might have a number of particular assets in one trust, but you want to pass control of the trusts onto your children so you need to move the trust into different trusts rather than have them all be the trustee of one trust and work together in those sorts so of things. So let's say you have three children and you set up three trusts and then you want to move assets yeah. into each of those three trusts. That's right. So create a you know, a cloned trust, which is really just a trust of similar terms with similar beneficiaries. And um, then you basically sell the asset from one trust to the other. You can do it different ways. That can just be, if, if you're doing it in that way, it's really just going to be a disposal, A1 disposal, whereas trust clone is where you more traditionally have the same trustee and you vest the asset from one trust to the other because it's the same legal owner, the same owner of the asset, but you are moving the asset from one trust to another. Now, the reason we would do that in Queensland is that you can do that without stamp duty consequences in Queensland. So there's a particular set of rules about what is a creation of a dutiable trust, provided the trustee is the same, the beneficiaries are the same, or trust interest they call it. The vesting between those two trusts, or trust clone, doesn't trigger a stamp duty event. Do you so, know if that's the same in the other states? No, it isn't. So oh, it's, it isn't. it's one of the benefits of living or one of the many benefits of living in Queensland, but, yeah, it doesn't, it, there's no similar application in I other see. states. You mentioned before that somebody would move three properties into three different trusts for stamp duty purposes, but if those three trusts all have the same trustee, then you don't get that effect because you stressed before that it needs to be a Correct. different trustee. But you subsequently change the trustee of those other trusts, oh, which again is not dutiable, it's not a CGT I event, see. so that's how you end up with with separate trustees. So you start with the same trustee for yes. all three, do trust cloning, yep. and then you change the trustee of each other two. That's right. That strategy does create a CGT event. So it is a CGT event E1. Is, so it's, is the vesting the CGT event? That's right. So the vesting of the asset across is the creation of a new trust over the asset or even E2 transfer of the asset, albeit it's probably not technically what's called a transfer because a transfer involves two parties, whereas it's the one trustee. So E1 is probably more relevant. So in that scenario, you've moved it across, but you have created a CGT event, but obviously there's no consideration for it. So it's really only going to work in a scenario where you've bought the asset and it hasn't appreciated in value and there's a negligible effect of um, CGT consequences, or you can 
perhaps use small business concessions to disregard most of the gain. So it's not going to work for everyone, but in circumstances I've used it in where clients have, like I said, bought that third property and suddenly they get a land tax bill. Well, that third property was probably only purchased in the last year and it might not have appreciated in value, so that CGT is either negligible or, or bearable. So, yeah, it is going to be a CDT event. People might do it to, to lock in the small business CDT concessions. Yeah, potentially. And that may be the added benefit of setting up their family planning structures, their estate planning structures, but also they, they do lock in that, that value. That's trust cloning. Another technique in the same area in that, I guess, estate planning, succession planning area is trust splitting. And trust splitting is a similar but different strategy. It's where you would appoint a separate trustee over a particular asset of the trust fund, but all of the assets remain part of one trust. So they remain part of the same trust, albeit that you have a trustee over one asset and perhaps a trustee over another asset. Or in the case of the three children, you might appoint one child in charge of each, each particular asset but they still remain part of that one original trust. Now, the Commissioner has put out earlier this year a draft ruling, is TD2018-D3, in which he addresses what he calls trust split arrangements. And he says that a trust split arrangement will exhibit all or most of a number of features, and they are... The trustee of an existing trust is removed as trustee of part of the trust fund and a new trustee, so that scenario where you point one trustee over one asset, one over another. Control of the original trustee is passed to an, a, another person, so you might appoint one child as a pointer for that one asset and another child as an appointer of another asset. So different appointers are appointed for each trustee. The rights of indemnity that a trustee has are limited to the assets that they're trustee of and there is an expectation that the new trustee will exercise its powers in respect of the asset it holds independently of the original trustee to benefit a subset of beneficiaries. The next one is that the rights, obligations and powers of the trustees and beneficiaries remain governed by one deed. The original trustee and new trustee keep separate books of account. So that's kind of the list that the commissioner has put out there to say, well, we think a trust split arrangement will have these essential features. And what he has said in that ruling is that he considers that arrangement to be a CGT event. You know, there's been fairly widespread angst about that ruling and the fact that it has disregarded a lot of what commercial nominees and clerks said, that if, if you've got sufficiently broad power to vary, changes in these things will not affect the continuity of the trust. And the introduction of this new concept that there's some expectation that a trustee will act in a certain way, and that really goes against, well, what a discretionary trust is all about. A discretionary trust is all about granting the power to one trustee to act in their sole discretion over trust fund property. One of the other aspects that's not covered is that certainly in Queensland, and I'm pretty sure it's the case across Australia, is that the Trust Act actually has a provision which says you can appoint separate trustees to separate trust assets. 
So there's a problem between what the trust law is saying and what the commissioner's view from a tax perspective is saying. So then you would have different trusts, though. If you have trustees for different trust assets, you would have different trusts. Well, our view and the view of a lot of commentators is that, well, it still remains part of the one trust. Where the commissioner finds fault is that he believes that what is created is a new trust for that asset which has new rules or new rights attached to it. Our view is there are no new rights. All there is is a new trustee. That's all there is. There may be a limitation in the right of indemnity against other trust assets, but his earlier rulings have said that that's acceptable after Clark's case. So there's a conflict there which I think isn't answered in his draft ruling and we'll wait and see what comes of a final ruling and whether any of those issues are addressed. Yes, and judges are not tied not. by this ruling, so they can go back to the Clark's case and decide differently and then the commissioner would have to change his ruling. Yeah, that's well, that's exactly right. So it's and basically just a matter of time until court cases come through the courts and clarify. I think that's right. The commissioner had a view before commercial nominees and a view before clerks, and then his view changed because the court said, we think you're wrong. And that's the normal way it works. The fact is the commissioner puts out his view of the law. It doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. But it is his view of what the law is and how he will interpret it. It gives accountants and clients a signpost as to what he thinks is, is acceptable But again, it doesn't make it right. It's not the law, it's his interpretation of the law. The, the courts make the law, or the court, no, the courts give the right interpretation of the law. So that will be, I guess, an area that we just have to watch as to what their final ruling is and whether they finalise it or leave it in draft forever. We don't know. But I think that there is a lot more work that's required to get an accurate reflection of what the law is in relation to trust splitting. Welcome back. So the last four episodes have been about the legal side of trusts, but we will come back again soon to walk you through the taxation of trusts in Division 6, the streaming of trust income in Division 6E, and the trust loss provisions in Schedule 2F. In the next episode, episode 92, Ben Sewell of Sewell and Kettle will talk about phoenixing. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for the support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.
I send it to you, you review it, and only when you say yes, and if you say yes, cut this out, cut this out, we cut it out, and when you say let, yes, yeah. then we publish it. I'm thinking it might be best not even to mention that it was a solicitor who ran it. Yeah, no, no, I won't mention so that can, it's a solicitor. No, we no. We can just 